I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 22 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is John Langford of the Mekons, the Waco Brothers, the Three Johns, the Pine Valley Cosmonauts, the Killer Shrews, We Hairy Beasties, Men of Gwent, Skull Orchard, and Four Lost Souls, and I know I'm missing some bands. He's also a talented artist whose distinctive portraits of Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Mavis Staples, Muddy Waters, The Clash, Bill Monroe, and many others have appeared in galleries, on album covers, and on the walls of people with fine taste. I have a few Langford prints myself. In other words, John Langford is multi-talented and also very busy. He is a man inclined to say yes. He even performs two new songs on this episode, which was recorded at his art studio in Chicago's Avondale neighborhood. He was born in Wales, formed the Mekons in Leeds, England, and moved to Chicago almost 30 years ago, launching the Waco Brothers soon afterward. If there were a Most Valuable Chicagoan Award, I'd nominate him. He supports teachers, unions, and just about anyone doing good work. He's constantly playing out live with one of his bands, with fellow Mekon and previous Carol Pop guest Sally Timms, and with guitarist John Szymanski and others. When the pandemic shut things down, John kept playing on the backs of trucks, in people's yards, on outdoor stages, at a cider farm, or online, so he could support small clubs and businesses when they most needed it. The Mekons have earned the reputation as one of the greatest ever bands that never got quote-unquote big. But becoming rich and famous was never the aim of John Langford and this musical collective. As he describes here in vivid detail, he was a young art student and drummer whose life changed when he came face-to-face with a British punk scene. To him, punk wasn't about rebellion, but freedom. A band can do whatever it wanted to do. The Clash sang White Riot. The Mekons countered with Never Been in a Riot for their debut single. The Langford says they did get caught up in one later. By the second single, Where Were You, they had learned the value of a hook. John discusses the impact of ska, reggae, and country on the scene and on the Mekons music. The title of the Mekons Fear and Whiskey from 1985 sure sounds like it belongs to a country album, with Susie Honeyman's fiddle pushing it in that direction. The Guardian writes, Fear and Whiskey earned the band the tag, the Godfathers of Alt Country. The Langford isn't so sure. The Wacos have gone in that direction as well, by the way. John Langford reveals the intuitive, unstructured way in which he and fellow singer-guitarist Tom Greenhalgh write Mekon songs and how they conceptualize many of their albums. Their rousing 1989 album, The Mekon's Rock and Roll, became a commentary on having been signed to AM Records. In the song, Memphis, Egypt, boasts one of the greatest album opening lines in rock history. John has a great story about how that line came to be. John Langford is one of the funniest, most quick-witted musicians around, yet he's also grounded in an often harsh reality. Mekons came of age during one dark era and continue to exist in another, as do the ever-awesome Waco Brothers and Four Lost Souls and all those other incarnations. The past few years have been rough in many ways, and John is candid about the toll they've taken. 
but he still had two more shows scheduled over the next three days, would soon take a music cruise with the Waco brothers and is ready to record another Mekons album. He keeps fighting that good fight. Please enjoy the words and music of John Lankford on Carol Pop. All the powers and the horror, the more you stray. So we're here in John Langford's studio on the north. Would you call it the northwest side or just the north side? This is fashionable Avondale, Mark. Avondale. Yeah, up and coming. We're surrounded by your artwork and drums and uh, instruments. And we have, uh, we have portraits you've done of, of various rock and rollers. you got Richard Thompson behind you, Mavis Staples and Coco Taylor looking over us, uh, Joe Strummer, Graham Parsons, uh, Johnny Cash. What did you do first, pick up an instrument or a paintbrush? Uh, I drew my whole life. When I was a kid, I just used to draw obsessively. I used to get told off in school by teachers for doodling all the time. But actually, the doodling and the drawing helped me concentrate. And I was even at art school, and I remember getting told off there for, for doodling during lectures. It's like I'm meant to be drawing, aren't I? But uh, no, I, I went to art school in 1977 in Leeds, and punk rock happened and I kind of threw away my paintbrushes because it all seemed kind of irrelevant for a while and when I moved here it seemed like I didn't have any way to make any sort of living whatsoever so <laughs> I fell back Welcome to on America. being an artist so actually you know I got Im- immense encouragement here from people like Tony Fitzpatrick and uh, you know it seemed I was, I was a good draftsman when I was a kid I was very good at I was very good at drawing. I could draw, copy things and draw things. And I just didn't have any subject. I didn't have any thing I really wanted to do with that skill. And uh, after, I don't know, being 15 years in a van with the Mekons driving around and the Three Johns and that experience of playing music and uh, writing songs and traveling the world, it, it suddenly it kind of clicked in my head that maybe visual art could could be like songwriting and something I could do. But when you went to art school, University of Leeds, right? Uh, were, were you thinking, I'm doing this because I want to spend my life as a visual artist? Uh, I think I was a kid and I thought art school was an easy way out of the hometown and probably not a very taxing option. Because you grew up in Wales. I grew up South in Newport Wales. and there was an art school in Newport and if I hadn't gone to a university to do art, I'd have had to stay an extra year in Newport. And for I love Newport, but I didn't. I wanted to get away, so I was ready to go. Just happened that I ended up at Leeds University Fine Art Department at the same time as Tom, who was in the Mekons with me. And the first people I met were guys that I was in the Mekons with. And the first day I was there, they told me about their friends who had a band called the Gang of Four. And they were they were, they wasn't called the Gang of Four at that point. They were just starting. And uh, I fell in with a crew and uh, punk rock sort of happened roughly the same time. And it was... Didn't uh, one of the Mekons named the Gang of Four, right? Not you, though. I asked you. Not me, no. <laughs> Probably Andy. But it was someone It was someone in a van. It was a Mekon. I think it says it on the Wikipedia page. Gang of Four, which got its name from a Mekon. I think probably Andy Corrigan did it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, when you went to art school, were you into music? Were you playing an instrument? Like, when did you first pick up I an instrument? I had a drum kit, but I was playing in various kind of like cover bands and we were trying to do things. But that period was a very odd one from 
I got into music in like when I was about 13 with glam rock and I was really into Slade and um, T-Rex and Bowie. But then that all kind of seemed to dissipate and it all it all went away. And then the, the mid-70s when should have been my prime teen years of being interested in music got taken over by prog rock and sort of bands like Yes and Genesis and stuff like right. that, which I wasn't that very interested in. And the teenagers weren't that into the pub rock scene at that point. So. Well, pub rock was something that was localized to London, really, and it was it was happening, but I wasn't really that aware of it. Um, I did see Dr. Feelgood on the TV in, I think, 1975, and that changed, you know, to have a band that played two-and-a-half-minute songs with who looked like they'd taken loads of speed and wore tight trousers rather than massive flares and having long hair was quite interesting, you know. So I think that was, you know, a, a foreshadowing of punk rock. And But what I wanted was something that spoke to me about, you know, my life and something that I could feel in that was my music and all the music that was going on felt like someone's older brother's music, you know. Well, so what was it that sparked you? I mean, you're an art student, you're about to become an artist, and then all of a sudden you're shifting into the music scene. How did that happen? So, well, the Sex Pistols came came around, played Leeds Polly's, one of the few gigs they could do on that tour. And I didn't even go. I lived way out of town. I lived about six miles out of town in some stupid hall of residence. And uh, I didn't go that night. But then all my Tom and uh, Kevin and other guys from the Mekons went. And the Gang of Four went. And they saw the Sex Pistols, the Clash, I think the Damned and the Heartbreakers all played as well. and All in the same bill? Yeah. And it was called, I think it was the Anarchy Tour. It was, it was a tour that was banned nearly everywhere, but Leeds Polly put it on. And it was very uh, controversial at the time. And I don't know, it just, what they gave us was a license to make our own entertainment, basically. We kind of were confused. I think people in the north of England, Wales, Scotland, took punk rock, at very face value. There was a lot of kind of um, rhetoric and kind of going on about it. There was a lot of conversations about it. And it seemed to us that those conversations meant you could just do whatever you wanted. The punk rock was just, it wasn't like another phase of the music industry. It was actually the dismantling of the music industry. And I think bands in London, there was kind of like that. There was a bit of a pose with it. It was a fashion, you know, it was the next step of fashion. The next big thing. It was the next part of the music industry. To us, it was like the end of it, the, all that. The chains were all off. You could yeah. do whatever you wanted. So, I mean, you look at bands like come come out of Sheffield, come out of Manchester, come out of Leeds or Scotland, or Wales even, different sorts of bands came out. And they took took that promise of punk rock quite literally and didn't want to be part of the music industry was you know bands like the clash obviously went on and became you know part of the part of the industry but right. there was what was going on at the time was it was an independence just taking control of your own entertainment so people weren't just in bands people were running clubs people were making badges fanzines making their own um you know setting up little record labels to do stuff so yeah, anything to be to be kind of to have control of over what you were doing rather than having to throw yourself into the the sausage machine and the lid was off for a bit and it, i think it scared the major labels and you know the country in general was pretty terrified right. for a little bit but you know there was no punk rock fashion where we were you know you think now of punk rockers all in leather jackets with mohicans that wasn't really going on when we 
we started. People just kind of turned up dressing pretty weird. Hmm. <laughs> Did you, were you responding? Upset your parents basically. Yeah, there you go. It wasn't really a, a, a straight fashion, you know. Were you responding mostly to sort of the sound of it and sort of how unpolished it was and how you really didn't need to be, you know, a Steely Dan level musician to do this? Or were you also responding to just the attitude of what they were singing about and the stances they were taking and well it seemed like it it was political and it seemed like it dealt with everyday life real life and it seemed like it was kicking the doors open for people who weren't really musicians you know music had been dominated with through the prog rock years for so long by people who were virtuosos and the, the the great thing about music was how fast a lead guitar player could play or how how loud a band were or something like that. And it was just it was just how many time signature changes they had during a an opus. And it, for us, it was like getting back to the basics of rock and roll. What was exciting? I didn't have any particular skills, but I actually had uh, you know I had I had ideas about politics, and I, I wanted to see that politics reflected in the music and. Uh, when bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols presented that, it was mind-blowing. So, And you had a drum kit, so you'd... I did have a drum kit. I was in demand when I got up to Leeds. They they all wanted me, Mark, I tell you. So you already had the drum kit at the time yeah, this all yeah, happened. Were yeah. you already in... Did the Mekons already exist as the Mekons when this concert happened? No, no, happened, no. The Mekons were direct you reaction guys were... to The Sex Pistols coming and playing and... Uh, uh, someone in the movie, the Megons movie, so rather cruelly says, oh, those idiots could do it, we could do it, which apparently John Lydon saw the movie then was really upset with the Megons and hates us now. Because I would never put it that way. But what the point that was being made was that look, it was a, the anyone can do it aspect. We certainly didn't think the Sex Pistols were idiots. I thought they were incredibly brave because I knew how harsh it was out there in what they were doing. They were putting their heads up and saying, look, we're different. And they got their heads kicked in. John Lydon got stabbed, you know, just by people who couldn't deal with that freedom that they were presenting. So for us, um, the first Clash single was called White Riot. Right. And it was on a major label. And I love the Clash. I think the Clash are great. Joe Strummer, he lived in Newport before he uh, went down to London to form the Clash. So he's, you know, kind of almost like a hometown hero on some levels. And uh, I just felt there was something weird and naive about writing a song called White Riot in an era when, you know, the, a lot of the street politics were overtly racist and fascist. And when that song appeared in Leeds, where we lived up in Yorkshire, miles up the M1 from London, uh, people took that took that song as a, you know, they thought the Clash were fascists. They thought they were giving them permission to have a white riot. Yeah, and Susie Sue, like, wearing, and Sid Vicious wearing swastikas, you know, I know there were art students trying to shock, but it was really deeply irresponsible, and that was stupid, you know. I hated that, you know. So you responded with never been in a riot. Yeah, it was kind of like, if we're going to do politics, let's do it, let's be, let's be real about it. Let's actually say what, you know. But when we wrote that song, we hadn't been in a riot, but, you know, pretty pretty quickly we were in, in riots. I mean, riotous situations and definite street conflicts with, and at gigs where we were harassed and beaten by right-wing youth, you know? Hmm. Did you get any response from, or reaction from The Clash when you put that out, or was it? No, actually, The Clash put out, uh, they put out... Um, a single called, what's it called? 
Hitsville, UK, which was off the Sandinista album. Right. And they included the cover of Never Been In A Riot on the artwork. Really? It was, meant to be, it was a celebration of, it's kind of a weird Motown-y sounding it song. It is. Yeah, with, dude, I think dude, Mick dude. Jones sings it, but it's, it's about, you know, the independent explosion of independent music and independent labels in England. It's a great a great song and it was a great tribute you know but that's again that was a few years later that's about two years later there was a, there was a time in there around 80 81 where like every british new wave so so-called new wave band was doing a you can't hurry love baseline song so you had elvis costello doing love for tender and the jam doing town called malice and the the clash doing hitsville uk and they all had that do 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 which is great. It was fun. It's fun to hear that with, you know, it's better than Maneater. Well, it's all to be plundered. That's what I think. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We probably just didn't have the skills to do that. We, we were, the, me, the second Mekon Signal uh, was called Where Were You? And the, the record label advertised it as the Mekon's new awareness of sound. <laughs> like we had, we didn't know what sound was when we made our first single. It was so barbaric. So that was the, so that was your revelation. Was where were you? Yeah, we suddenly worked out how you you know to make music. It sounded like something rather than. Yeah, when I talked to Sally, she was talking about how we were talking about kind of how dark times seem right now, and she was talking about how dark they were when the Mekons were really coming up as well. And she was, you know, the north of England in the night, late nineteen seventies was grim you know and i see photographs of it now it's it's almost shocking that we were this part of this huge there was a huge student population like twenty thousand students at the university and the polytechnic both right in the center of leeds which is a major northern industrial city which had fallen on really hard times and uh you look at the pictures of it now it was it was yeah it's 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 amazing it's it's so grim as of saying, it's when well, you're getting attacked north. by, you know, you're getting attacked at shows. I mean, yeah, I mean, all sorts good. of. We had people seek highliness, you know. Fortunately, I knew a lot of rugby players that used to come to our shows. So when the, the fascists used to try and attack the Mekons, the rugby players used to try and beat the fascists up. So it was kind of all right. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that sometimes we think like, where did these people come from? When you suddenly see people doing this Nazi stuff, but they've just kind of been lurking about. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting narrative from punk rock that there was a lot of confusion at the beginning of it. And punk rock was essentially pretty white and male when it started. And then, but it did break down a lot of barriers until so women started appearing in bands and it wasn't so much of a novelty. And then with the Scar thing, which was, I think, a direct extension of punk rock, actually bands started to mirror what inner cities looked like. And punk was interesting on the sense of culturally it brought together um i don't know if the west indian youth really liked the punk music but what got played at a lot of the punk clubs was reggae music so because there weren't really any punk singles so if you went to the russell club in manchester where factory records were doing their early gigs or we would often play shows in west indian clubs like the, the roots in chapel town in leeds or the west indian cultural center and places like that that's the sort of places that would actually have punk bands on and what pl- was played between the bands was reggae music and it made total sense because a lot of people i think over here in the states think of reggae music as some kind of um you know it's like tropical and it's like having a nice drink with an umbrella in it by a palm tree and things like that and to me reggae music was the sound of the british inner cities you know we tom from the mekons lived in brixton on cold arbor lane you know on the soundtrack 
to the Mekons, like kind of getting back together in the early eighties, was we just used to listen to West Indian pirate radio, and that's what that's pretty much all I listened to when I lived in Chapel Town. You know, just put on put on the pirate radio and just listen to reggae. All it was it was very, you know. It was everywhere. You know? Yeah, I mean, you had the two-tone ska thing with, like, the specials and, uh, you know, the selector and Madness, which uh, was a little popular. against racism movement yeah. at the same time, which it's, punk was very political and there was a lot of causes. But, you know, you had people like Eric Clapton saying Enoch was right and making his... I mean, right. how Eric Clapton, you know, ever got away with any of that and how he's even vaguely I've always wondered that how he is how he's he's a slippery fish Eric because he he managed to get through all that the vile things he said the racist crap he said which he put it down to drugs and alcohol you know right I always say I've done drugs and alcohol but I never say things like that yeah that's always a bad excuse (laughs) it has to be in there you know no I would go back and read that stuff and I'd be like how is how is he okay you know it's it's strange who sort of slips through the cracks especially in this town Chicago the people here think he's great for some reason he used uh, to be the second coming when eric clapton I, comes to i town. was never a fan i do not get it i don't even like his guitar playing I jimmy hendrix was much better uh but you know that as i said that, that rock against racism thing was coming up around the same time as the the two-tone thing and you had right. bands like misty and roots and the ruts playing together it was like you know you had this kind of vision of britain as a multiracial society which is much more realistic than what people thought and about the time the mekons were kind of splitting up the first and we didn't really split up but we kind of stopped playing after we'd been dumped by virgin records uh, the specials were what was going on you know and the specials were number one in the charts with a song like ghost town yeah i love that song i'd be at the i'd be at you know like in the park watching the specials at a rock against racism festival and you'd see all these kids there like hang on i recognize them they used to be nazis and now they're <laughs> dressed as these now they're all twin tone you know it's a twin tone two tone two tone yeah. um, uh, we were we were signed to twin tone that was another thing yeah no and then and then the clash i mean they're doing reggae on london calling i mean you oh, guys well, they are did doing, that really early on they had, yeah they were, they were well aware joe strummer was well aware johnny john lyden was you know when he did his yeah they did pressure drop thing. too they covered that john lyden went on he upset malcolm mclaren because he you know he's meant to be this like antichrist kind of like saying everything's crap and he went on capital radio one night and he said what sort of rec- music do you rec- pl- listen to and he played played a bunch of reggae and a bunch of can and sort of beef art and things like that which right. is you know people Punk didn't come out, didn't fall out of the sky. Punk rock, the, it was a, yes, a, a, a we were, it was like we were like magpies, you know, picking up little bits. You had the Velvets and you had the Stooges on one one end, and then you had reggae music on the other. And the Mekons were very influenced by reggae. We just couldn't play it. Yeah, you've you've tr- <laughs> you've you've done a lot of reggae over the years, though. There's always like the little reggae track. Well, that once shows Steve Goulding joined the Mekons, it was easier. Because ah, there you Steve Goulding is probably the best. Uh, What's the word? I don't know. Drummer? <laughs> oh, but I was going to say white reggae drummer, but that sounds is, like such a weird thing to say. But he, he does hold on, down a great groove. I mean, he does. On, um, he played on Elvis Costello's he does Watch, Watch the, the Detectives. Detectives. Yeah. And I, when I heard that, I didn't know Steve. I didn't know it was him 
doing it. I knew I knew Graham Parker and the Rumor because we loved them. We loved that. Yeah. Band. So Steve Goulding was Graham Parker and the Rumors drummer. He's yeah. the drummer on uh, that Nick Lowe, Pure Pop for Now, People, Jesus and Cool. Yeah, he's playing on, on Reckless Eric. His whole whole uh, whole wide world. You know? And then yeah, he's 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 the drummer on just watching the detectives before the attractions came in. But just before the pandemic, we did a cruise, the Outlaw Country cruise, in and Steve came because Joe Camarillo, our drummer, uh, whose drum kit is sitting over there. Was 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 sick, and he d- didn't didn't really feel like he could handle it. So we got Steve to come, and uh, it was kind of a good thing because uh, Lee Perry got on the boat in Jamaica, right? And they asked which bands would like to play with Lee Perry, and I guess some of the bands probably didn't know who Lee Perry was, but we were like, we want to play with Lee Perry, and Lee Perry kind of got up on stage with us on the Saturday night at the, you know, thousand people on the main deck, it was just beautiful, off the coast of Jamaica. And yeah, no, I remember seeing you posting, like, there's the Waco Brothers back in Lee Perry, and that's yeah, real, and then he was going to do a record with you guys too, right? Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that, I talked to his manager, it was all... He passed away before that happened. Well. Yeah, but. that was really, really sad. I mean, he was lovely, and then he he came out on the stage, and you could tell, you know, he's probably got up and done a bunch of things with people who don't. And then Steve, we started with, I think, Curly Locks, which is a Junior Biles song that he produced, but there's a version of him singing it, which is really great. He gets up on the stage, he looks at me, and then we all, everyone's cheering, I look at him and said, you ready? And he's like, he smiles, and then Steve does the role from the beginning of the record, exactly. Right. Right, and then he kind of looks, and he's like, <laughs> he looks at me, and he's like, oh. <laughs> And he was great. And then he got us up to sing with him. He played with another band on the boat. And then he got us up to do the backing vocals. And we had a, a lovely time with him. But yeah, Steve Goulding's, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, what a, an asset. I was the drummer in the Mekons and I, I willingly threw my drumsticks away once we got Steve. So did he replace you or was there anyone in between? There was a drum machine in between. <laughs> <laughs> I was desperate not to play the drums because I knew what my limitations were and I was good. I was pretty good on the uh, kind of early punk sounding stuff, but we were getting more into sort of groovy stuff. What was the first song you wrote and was it with Tom and how did that partnership work? Um... I was involved musically with some of the early Mekon stuff. Um, there's a couple of things where I wrote a tune and other people would write the lyrics. Mark White mostly wrote all the lyrics, but we'd kind of come up with tunes. But, into, I, you know, it was we didn't think of ourselves as songwriters really then. These, these weren't, I don't know, we didn't really think of them as crafted songs in any way. They were kind of like little rants. And I think... Um, I would only really think of myself as writing songs. It was it was so collaborative, and it still is with the Mekons. Um, but I think there was a point around Fear and Whiskey where basically it was only me and Tom and Kevin really involved in that process. And then we, we actually, yeah, we kind of got on a bit of a roll with songwriting. But normally with the Mekons, collaboratively. And then when I moved to the States in the 90s, I started writing songs on my own, which was quite weird. And then... And you've been prolific at it, too. Yeah. Well, you know, the first solo album I did, I wrote all these songs in Chicago about my hometown in Newport. 
<laughs> it's kind of like a cry for help or something. I don't know. But um, so, so when you write Mekon songs with Tom, does it usually start off with a lyric, with an idea, with a riff, music? Um, it depends. The pandemic's been difficult. It's got it's got more more normal because of the pandemic in the sense that I will, we'll I'll send him a sheaf of lyrics and he'll start putting tunes to it and singing things back down his phone. It's a bit more like songs appear when we do things. Um, when we just turn up at the studio, we have ideas. Sometimes we just have a concept of what a song should be about or one little riff or maybe, you know, maybe one little stolen phrase or something, you know, either musical or lyrical that will, let's have a song that's like about this, you know, and then, I mean, there's a good bit in the Mekons movie when we do the song uh, Far and Forlorn and it traces the song from just like looking in books to building a tune, to recording it, to actually performing it live. And it's, I quite like that bit because it's, yeah, it's very messy and it's different every time. And I think we like the fact that it's different every time. We've never had a formula. We never like sat down and said, oh, that worked last time. Usually, if anything vaguely like that happens, it's usually a bad idea. So, so, so like Fear and Whiskey, which is sort of the first of the, the Mekons as you know them albums, I guess you would say. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Would, would you, is that you and Tom again, just sort of sitting in a room together and coming up with stuff? Or does one of you say, hey, I got this, you know, this one, Last uh, Dance. And uh, Well, there was an album, not an album, an EP that came out before, before Fear and Whiskey called The English Dancing Master, which was done in a little eight-track studio in Bridlington in, in uh, the East Riding of Yorkshire by the sea. And, couple of the songs the key songs on fear and whiskey i think last dance and no country here were written there but they were just written then in the studio right i remember you know last dance was just so i think tom had some words and i started playing a tune on the piano because my piano playing is very very uh primitive but you know, I could pick out a melody, and I started playing that little tune, and then we had yeah. Well, I didn't even play that. I played da 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 da. I just played on the piano, and then John Gill, who was a friend of ours, who produced and worked with us on stuff, could play button accordion. So he started playing. He put those little trills into it but it was like we were thinking very much about english traditional music and folk music at the time and trying to combine it with using drum machines to try and combine it with some kind of like hypnotic trancey kind of reggae dub reggae thing so uh by the time fear and whiskey came around the miners strike had happened and we wanted to have a band that could play miners benefits and steve and lou had joined the band susie was in it as well at that point and then um, it became more of this kind of like driving, noisy country rock thing. Right. It had the whole country element of it too, which yeah, but that, was, that, that did wasn't not come really out there the... in the original songs in a way. It's strange. I don't know. Fear and Whiskey sounds like a country album. Like it just it has, it has elements of probably because you have Susie in there, but it's yeah, there's it's, elements, there's elements, and it's, I mean, it's but again, it's like what Bob Lass said about the original Meekons. It's like it's like looking at a photocopy of a pop song. And I think that's that pretty much applied to when we did that album. People saying it was like country music. It was like, it was much, I think the whole thing was much more kind of like, 
complicated than that. We well, just acqu- we'd acquired certain things without fully understanding them. Oh, we'd taken the bits we wanted, and then- right? Well, which is which had happened with ska and reggae before that, and yeah, yeah. Like, had you had you just sort of independently gotten into I don't know Hank Williams at the time or. Johnny Cash, or was it like where did that come from? About '83, Terry Nelson, who was the music director of WZRD, I've told this story so many times, came over Sorry. to England and he found. You could fast forward if you've heard this, people. He found the Mekons. He came to find the pretty things in the Mekons, and he basically put us in touch with Dick Taylor, who was the guitarist in the Pretty Things, who was actually a, a founder member of the Rolling Stones, right? And who'd left the Rolling Stones because he didn't want to play bass, and he ended up uh, being in the Mekons. <laughs> I still Dick's played on the last Dick played on the last record we made as well. That's funny. He's fantastic. Fr- One of wonderful human being, Dick Taylor. He, you guys he was like- always my favorite sixties pop star because he looked so different to all the rest of them. Because he had a little beard, and he was not. Have you ever seen pictures of the pretty things from the sixties? Oh, yeah, yeah. I always remembered. You him. ever throwing like a midnight to six uh, cover or something yeah, like that? I always or? thought about this guy thinking, "Wow, he was really cool." I always thought he was cool because he was the only one of those kind of like mop top people from the 60s who had a beard but uh yeah he ended up in the band because terry introduced him to us and also terry was obsessed with country music and he thought we were like a country band and he gave us cassettes called um honky tonk classics volumes one to five i believe we volume one was the best one because it had Ernest tub on one side with some George Jones and then a whole side of Merle Haggard with a bit of Hank Thompson, a bit of Kitty Wells, I believe, and possibly a bit of um, Loretta Lynn on it as well. And we listened to that and it blew our minds. We were like, this is, it was so punk rock because his, Terry's thesis about the Mekons was we were a country band because all right. our songs were about simple two or three chord songs that were about failed sexual relationships and bars so (laughs) (laughs) well i was living in boston in sort of the mid late 80s and my good friend jimmy gutterman uh was had introduced me to fear and whiskey and edge of the world and took me to see you guys on the honky tonkin tour at the paradise but i but i had this sort of more of the country mekons kind of impression because it was honky tonkin and well uh, honky tonkin was was kind of a bit of a joke because we didn't we didn't think that that record sounded even vaguely country but everyone was saying <laughs> we were country. Well, uh, not really. I don't know. We've got, we got, so we've got, so really good. It hurts it. had more reggae on it, as I remember. Well, it was more kind of, I think that was more kind of worldy poppy or yeah. something. There was something All else. Right. So we're we just were jumping trying to go somewhere point. else. And then by the time we made rock and roll, we decided we should make a rock and roll album. Right. Which, which I love. So, yeah. okay. So tell me this, you, you come out of punk and you're like, now we have, we're liberated. We can do whatever we want. Did you at any point think it would be cool to be become a really big popular band and for us to become rock stars? Um, no, we we I think we'd had that kicked out of us very early on. And when we did, we were completely amazed when we were signed to A&M in the late 80s. Right. And then we thought we should at least sort of make an album that talks about this process so that's what the rock and roll album was meant to be about i mean originally the songs were going to be called the publisher the agent (laughs) the manager the a and r man you know and and kind of really and then we thought well that's they're gonna just fire us even sooner if we do that so so good it hurts the previous album which definitely had more polish than the ones before it that was on twin tone yeah if i recall yeah so that was sort of a step up and that you're sort of in that 
you're on like the replacements label and yeah, no, I think Honky Tonking was on that as well, but yeah, that, was, that, was a, right. that was a surprise to, to, to even have a proper American label, you know. Right. Although we had, you know, we had a good label. We had Rough Trade in Europe were doing it as well. So at the time, we were pretty much, you know, we were quite established as an indie act at that point. Fear but, and Whiskey but, did a good job in the sense that we weren't like begging for a record deal every two minutes people were coming to us and asking us what we wanted to do you know? so was that exciting to you or did you feel like you had to kind of put the clamps down like no 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 i can't we can't get too popular i can't i can't let my head get big because we're catching on yeah i don't think we really thought that anything like that was going to happen i mean we had there was so there was so, so much information coming the other way that you know even when we were on a and m that was you know the humiliations came thick and fast so well, Mekon's Rock and Roll, which is on A&M, uh, two more songs on it, the British version, which I got later, because when yeah. I got it, it didn't have um, yeah, they didn't, Heaven and Back they didn't and want, Ring of Roses. They didn't uh, want to pay roses. publishing on 14 songs. That was it? That was it. So they said, which songs, which songs should we take off? So we thought, let's see if they're paying attention. We'll take off the one that sounds most obviously like a radio single, Heaven and Back. <laughs> so we said, we'll take that one off. And then they went, okay. And you're stuck with having no heaven and back on that album. Yeah, because we were. It was that sort of backfire. It was a ludicrous situation. I'm not sure what I would have taken off instead, but but I, I I, when There's I got the British record, I would off. see I would see you uh, live, and I'd be like, oh, heaven and back it was like, that's the one where you're kicking in the. Is that the one where um, Eric Rico Bell fell over? Was that during heaven? There and is back? a legendary video on YouTube. Oh, which yeah, you yeah. can Find where? He, but I think that was the song, right? He flies backwards at sixty miles an hour for about a quarter of a mile before. <laughs> destroying my amplifier and kicking over my beer which was more painful wow yeah because it could because you'd sing i've been to you all go i've been it's one of the great you know unison you have all these great unison yeah. songs he'd sing i've been to heaven and back and then kick and everyone would kick it's not when, when nothing he's holding like a 60 pound um accordion i guess that you shouldn't kick too far well he's done it many times in the past he's flipped over backwards other times to do it's nothing to do with alcohol. Um, I, I think his accordion had put on a lot of weight at the time. Oh, there you go. It was heavier than it ever been before. So, so every once in a He's while, he's got a smaller accordion now. Oh, there you go. It's good. It's good to have a smaller accordion. Uh, every every once in a while, uh, someone on Twitter will write, "What's the best first line of any album?" And I always write, "Destroy your safe and happy lives before it is too late." The second line's very good too, but uh, but but that's, that's the first line from Mekons Rock and Roll. Well, that's the song, interesting because that was a, Egypt. we were trying to write a press release for the Mekons, and that was the what we that was what we wrote. Me and Tom wrote for a press release. So that's where that line came that, from. Or was your mind? It was like should, that's good, isn't it? We should put that in a song. Do you so remember that, who came up with it, or were you just sort of? Uh, I think I did. It seems, seems like something you would say. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to say things like that. It's the story of saving happy lives before it is too late. The battle we fought were long and hard just not to be consumed by rock and roll, which yeah. is the first line on your big major label rock and roll album. Yeah. I mean, that was, we wanted to, we were art students and we wanted to demystify. You know, we wanted to show, uh, the to pull away the veil and show the, the cogs moving around. That's what our plan was. That's what we thought punk rock was about. And I think it's still really interesting. I went to a great um, little symposium the other night about um, Virgil Abloh, who just died. But, uh, you know, it was this kind of black guy from Rockford who became 
chief designer at Louis Vuitton and, and basically posted stuff about how sneakers are made and you know hmm. basically one of well one of the kids who's talking about him and what a great influence he was on him is Kai Larry uh kid from Benin and uh, you know was mentored by Virgil Abloh and he said he said the demystify word he said yeah he demystified the process and I was going like bloody hell this is like being in a Mekon's Gang of Four seminar in like <laughs> 1977 because these are the sort of words we used to toss around it was about right. to make him to be on a major label it was like you know were we thinking about how successful we could become or we were thinking about how do you how do you turn this situation into art you know, that's what we were thinking about. Right. And that's not what the label Sounds was thinking stupid, about. Sounds stupid, but it's... No, but, but we made a good album yeah. at the same time. We were also reading... Me and Tom were reading Hammer of the Gods, that book about Led Zeppelin. Right. And reading the descriptions of Led Zeppelin's move, music in that. And God, God, if their music really sounded as good as this guy <laughs> talks about it, that, that would, they would be the best band in the world. But kind of neither of us really like Led Zeppelin all that much. So we thought we should try and make music that sounds like this guy's descriptions of Led Zeppelin. So right. that song Amnesia was definitely that. And Memphis Egypt. Which oh, yeah, we got a Led we Zeppelin We were trying to make something in, uh, like, yeah. We were, Amnesia. Yeah, we were trying to make something that sounded, you know, let's make exciting rock music. Everyone thinks we're a kind of Cajun reggae band or something. We should, you know. Yeah, no, that's a... You, you And you became buddies with Robert Plant later. Did you did you tell him that you thought Led Zeppelin was like, eh? <laughs> buddies? Well, you opened for him at Millennium Park. You guys yeah. were bonding. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I don't know if you're buddies, but I, I got the impression you two had a warm relationship. He's, he, do you know what? He was very, very nice to me, actually. I have to like say it. that. He's, he's lovely and he's a very charming company. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Buddies is a bit strong. Okay, buddies is strong. I'm sorry. I like the idea of promoting the idea of John Langford and it's Robert Plant be, as buddies. It's hard to be buddies with a golden god. I mean, I don't, I don't kind of phone him up and have a chat every now and then. You don't see, you just was, don't come was, up and say, "Hey, mama," you know the it way was, you it, He was very, very gracious, and he was. I would say it was not very much on my terms. You know, I wanted to go on holiday with him, but he wouldn't take me. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know what? he's a great example because uh, of. Of someone who's like, you know, his career has got, got kind of more interesting. Right. You know, uh, I, I didn't really like Led Zeppelin that much, I admit. I never, they never did it for me. Uh, I can appreciate them more now because my, my kids, my older son, really liked them. But then when we went to see him and, and, the, and the, the sort of things he'd done with that band, the, were they the shapeshifters or the space drifters what are they called yeah. I don't know I can't remember I loved what they did and I loved the way they integrated bits of Led Zeppelin into this kind of world music thing he was like he was doing this whole kind of like you know he was basically saying that all music is really great and you can have it you can have it both ways you can have a bit of this and a bit of that and I think that was very meconic for me we were you know we were kind of a bit magpie-ish and a bit like, well, we like this and we like that. We, you don't have to stick to one idea. People like you to stick to one idea. And like, it's easier for the music business if you stay in one box. Yeah, well, his, 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 put it this way, his career progressed and evolved in such a way that it didn't seem strange to have John Langford and Four Lost Souls opening for him at that point. Whereas, you know, 
in 1980 it would have. It was, yeah, it was, it was, that was lovely. That was really lovely to do that. No, he's a, you know, I just, he did, we'd play with the choir um, at the last Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, where they managed to get him to bring the choir from Toronto out. So mm. it was me and Bethany and John Szymanski and Sally with uh, like 30 piece Welsh male voice choir. And uh, Robert did an interview the day before and he, he said, and, you know, he just talked about my, how great it was that I was bringing a male voice choir. So that was like, you know, that was in the paper and it was kind of like, wow, that's a nice little confidence builder. Yeah. So perhaps he is our buddy. I was going to say, it's sort of like a buddy thing to do. He was very supportive. He's been in this room, actually, we're sitting in. He came over one day. Justin, his guitarist, was coming over and he said, hang on, Robert wants to come as well. So we brought, we're going to take him to Coom. I was taking Justin to Coomer's Corner, you know, the heavy metal burger right. place. And I said, I'll take, we'll go down there. And I said, now Robert's here. And it's like, oh, I don't know, should we, I don't know if we should, <laughs> that would have been like <laughs> some of the people Twilight of the there. Gods at Kuma's Corner if Robert well, Plant maybe they'll in. like rip his arms off and put him in a matchbox and keep him you know so, yeah. so we went to Logan Square because I don't think he likes particularly being recognised yeah and I said it's like a heavy metal they probably got a Led Zeppelin burger there and I said I don't think we want to go there and he was that like be funny. He said, we weren't heavy metal we were folk music that's <laughs> actually what he said we went to a pizza place in Logan Square and no one no one paid any attention to any of us. Wow. <laughs> and the old army I own drugs fighting a rock and roll war. Truth, justice, and let's have it. Heavy metal America. I talked to Sally about how she she knew you guys way before she actually joined the band. Yeah. Yeah, we were friends, but she pretty early on she was doing things, you know. She was kind of involved. Like the Beacon story, which was about nineteen eighty one, eighty two. Right. Even at that early she was singing songs on that. I found some tapes the other day that it's pretty funny, some of the stuff that uh we did early on. We were just fiddling around with synthesizers and just at, at home, you know pushing the boundaries of what a song could be and uh, there's some great bits of I like I enjoy the bits where Sally just bursts out laughing because it's this is so ridiculous you know well she's me and Tom think it's perfectly normal and she's just like rolling around on the floor laughing at how stupid it is well, well she's great at as, as I, I use the joke to use this phrase that often but she's fantastic at taking the piss she's always got really great insults on stage and your banter is always hilarious but she also has this voice that's like you know like no offense to to you and tom but you and tom have sort of rock and roll voices and then there's sally singing and she could be on stage you know at carnegie hall or something and but she's singing this you know tough rock and roll with this attitude at the same time and it brought this other element to the mecons that you know it's totally essential to who you guys are yeah i think so as well you know um I think Tom's got a really unusual voice, though, to be oh, yeah, honest. absolutely. To be honest, there's something going on with the way he sings that, I mean, I don't have any of that, you know? No, I, they're all I'm distinctive. A I'm a bit shy. I'm a shouter. Yeah. But, the, I've but, tried but really what you hard. do and what Tom does and what Sally <laughs> does, you all occupy very distinct spaces. And, and, yeah. and, I'm, not, and I'm not saying that you guys were not great. I'm saying that, you, that she, could, she could sing 
like if they if they put Sally in, she would hate me. I'm sorry I'm saying this, but if you'd like put her in like a modern version of the sound of music, you know, she would kill it, you know. But you're not gonna sing Mary the Chris- Poppins even. Yeah, yeah. But you're not gonna sing the Christopher Plummer parts, you know. <laughs> Have you done the punk, you could do actually punk rock you, you, Mary Poppins. You could do Edelweiss, I think, actually, but uh, uh Christopher Plummer. <laughs> he had a good run. He had a good run. He was good. Um I mean, I think well, we got Eric as well, see, so it's, it's quite interesting, yeah. the Mekons. It's, it's some good good singers in there, you know. And it's like, when I like it when we, we were just talking about what we'd do with a new album, and I sent Tom some ideas for a song, and Tom was going, maybe just do it like it is, have it keep it stri- really stripped down. And I was like, yeah, maybe instruments, but can't have all the voices on things. I like it whenever, and Steve's a good singer as well. I like it yeah. when everybody... Oh, yeah. Everybody sings, and Lou can do even do the Tuvan throat singing. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's uh, it's great. It's a great thing to have the distinctive voices. No, you have that. You, you, I mean, you have acapella songs. You know, it's like it's it all. The harmonies are really great, and uh, it's sort of this. Yeah, well, me and Sally don't do the harmonies. You don't do the harmony. Well, you, other people do. They sing to you. You sing them. <laughs> yeah, we can't do. We're useless. We it's, did a, We did an album where. Kelly Hogan, Nico Case, and Edith Frost came in and decided to, do, you know, they wanted to do backing vocals. Like, you should come, come in because we can't do harmonies. And there were some songs that really suggested, you know, that, and it was kind of amazing to see them work together, the three of them, hmm. produce all these, like, beautiful sounds out of our material. It was kind of, wow, that's kind of incredible. And oh, the best thing about that was, we said, how do you want to be credited? And Hogan just said, um... We want to be called Three Way Licky Licky. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why that that's on our record. But they did a couple of albums. They and that, that was nice as well. I but, have to go know, look at the credits on those. More vocals, the better. I like, I'm really into. I love the communal singing thing. We're uh, very interested in sea shanties and sort of things like that. Now, you know. So, so are you working on a new Mikans album right now? And are you yeah, going get to physically get together and do that? We're going to go to Spain. We were meant to go to Spain uh, April 2020, and we made the exquisite album instead right. remotely, which album. was hideously bureaucratic and difficult to do. And But I think it turned out great. And that's just come out on vinyl, so it's getting all this... You know, it seems like a long time ago that we made that, but... Uh, it's getting loads of airplay in England. It's great. Oh, wow. It's really nice to hear, Check out the vinyl hear these songs. That. I haven't even seen a copy yet. <laughs> but it's, you know, getting played on the BBC and things. It's nice. It's great. It's 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 it makes sense. It's it, it turned out to be a really good record. So we're excited now that we didn't make the record we were gonna make in Valencia, but there's a studio in Valencia and we have friends there that we wanted to go there and spend time there we like to go to des- destinations is the idea right we like to go to places where uh, we can get away from normal life to make things right. well you did deserted out in joshua tree yeah yeah and uh so this one is there a sort of a spanish theme to it or is it just this is just where you're gonna go like it's gonna be stripped down well it seems to time stripped down once, with the vocals stuff yeah. that you like once once you get to a place things kind of kick in so you know we did natural that was up in the lake district up right in, up in, like by some stone circles so we got very interested in stone circles at that point do you have songs written for this or are you just going to sort of get it together when uh, you get there? like i said there's a couple already so you know we're going to just keep passing ideas around and 
but sometimes it's just like a title or um you know basically we haven't got a title for the album yet that's 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 going to be important it usually sets the tone i should try to we should try to brainstorm a title for you it's the mecon spanish album but not in spanish well we got a spanish song on the last album see because we thought we yeah. were going so we right. had a spanish song spanish on. bombs so the uh there's a song called escalera which was the which is actually sally singing in spanish on that on the exquisite album so that's a kind of a ghosting of the fact that we were meant to record in Spain rather, well, Elvis rather than singing into our phones. Yeah, Costello had, you know, all these Spanish singers redo this year's model. So they took all the backing tracks of this year's model with people right. singing the lyrics in Spanish. So, you know, you could just pick a Mekons album like Rock and Roll and it could just be Rock and Roll. And uh, you could just go get a bunch of Spanish singers and then re-release it, get it. You know, you got the you got the rights back from A&M on that. So. No, I think we should do it in something like, you know, some other... Yeah, yeah. Other language, Urdu or <laughs> Yeah, instead of Spanish, I'll do something yeah. else. Um, so, so when you go off to do this album, you, you come in with a few songs, but you're going to write a lot of it in the studio, or how's that going to work? Yeah, I think a lot of it works like that. All things, if there are ideas, they usually get demolished or edited out, and uh, other things appear. So it's like seven of you together in a room, uh, bashing the stuff out? Eight. Eight? Yeah. I've encountered recently. Yeah, it's eight. Eight in the Mekons. We have Dave Trumfio, the right. bass player, and uh, he's been mixing a lot of stuff for us as well. He sounds is, great. Like, Dave and, and Steve are a fantastic rhythm section. Yeah, it just, it, you know, it's sometimes when you have a little tweak to the personnel, it makes everything make sense. And we've been kind of in a bit of a rut for a while. We didn't know what we were doing. And then suddenly Dave arrived with all this energy. And he's quite bossy as well, and it's quite it's quite good. Does he does he engineer stuff for you also? Yeah, yeah. So he's will he's he be been a sound engineer with the band, and he played like keyboards on various points, right? Played guitar live at various. I points. mean, he's gone back with you guys and worked yeah. the recording studio. Oh, I go back to you know early night. I met Dave when he was I think he was a teenager when I met, first met him. You know, so so any Mekon shows this year in the United States? Um, there was meant to be a Mekon show on a boat. Uh, we were going to do a cruise like the Waco brothers are going off on a cruise in a couple of weeks. We were going to go on a cruise uh, with the Buzzcocks. Oh, they, that's the little Lewis. Steven one I was talking about. The underground garage one. Is that yeah. not happening now? Uh, I don't know what happened. They didn't, I think it, when they launched it, it was like the height of all that Omicron stuff and they didn't sell any tickets. So they decided to, do it next year that was the one that i was going to try to worm my way on to yeah it's a stowaway on the boat for that fun it was coming it was different because it's the ones we've done in the past come out of miami and they're in the caribbean which is nice but to be in the mediterranean would have been great yeah but uh i don't know it's kind of weird i don't know if my future's playing on boats (laughs) what even with um even with the pandemic like what's the longest you've gone without playing live somewhere um, because it seems like you're playing all the time. Even during the pandemic, we played. We'd find places yeah. to play. We had to. We it probably there was a couple of months where we didn't do anything. But me and John Samansky decided we were a pod pretty early on, and uh, nicely, you know, and people were very generous. People were giving us 
large amounts of money to play to 15 people in people's backyards yeah i saw you i saw you in a good friend's backyard and yeah I playing mean, on the back lo- of trucks yeah all, lot, there was lots of you know i think 2020 was almost like a challenge well it was a challenge but it, it, it was a challenge that i quite enjoyed in the sense that it was like how do we make things still work how do we do how do we pivot and how do we do something different how do you make something interesting out of this horrible mess but uh this year or well it's now this year last year 2021 i found it very depressing yeah just the fact that i was banking on it being over because it just kept going on and on it just kept going on and on and then i'd run out of steam with i didn't want to play in people's backyards anymore play acoustic guitar i wanted to play loud electric guitar and they were you know there's some opportunities we to, to to do that but um last year was a rough year really rough year. we lost joe camarillo from the right. wake up brothers that was you know demoralizing but uh great drummer great guy yeah i mean just you know heart and soul of what we were doing you know and uh you know, we've actually gone back. We've, we were very lucky because he'd had some health problems before that, and Dan Massey had stepped in and played. And so Dan's coming. You know, Steve came on the cruise that Joe couldn't do. We're going on this outlaw country thing next week, and Joe Dan Massey's going to be playing on that. But you know, it's a year now since Joe died, and we were like, well, we got to do something. So we've actually been writing a lot of songs. So we went in the studio with Dan and recorded a whole album so, so you got a new waco's album recorded already? yep when's that coming out don't know don't know who's gonna put it out or... ah there you go it's well, uh we won't get into the label michigas right now but no i mean you know there's been enough brain space used up on a bloodshot record so i'm i'm quite happy now that we you know we've reached this point where things are opening up a little bit we've had the had the uh, energy to make something that we really like, and we're just excited. But we we can put it out. I mean, it, it's not it's not an issue. We have we have offers, but uh, you know, it's just a right. We try and do the right thing. Yeah, I look forward to hearing it and seeing you guys playing it. Does did getting through this you know pandemic, which hopefully we're getting through the end of it, knock wood. Did it did it sort of teach yourself anything about how you're feeling about? I don't know, any aspect of music and its role in your life or is this stuff you already knew and it was just like, let's just get on with it? Um, do you want me to get depressing? No, but I'm just All right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Be as depressing as you want. It's like I, that, to be honest, I've, I've been through some stages with this and I've, I, re- I thought maybe it would give me time to concentrate on other things and maybe I would spend more time in my painting studio and it would be some sort of breakthroughs with the visual art and maybe the songwriting and stuff like that. And there would be other things, but I think when it comes down to it, I thrive on some kind of forward motion and new opportunities and, you know, uh, probably feed on the adrenaline of playing in front of a crowd and like just new things happening. And it was like two years of, not many new things happening and i found it very depressing to be honest does, does it get you energized to get back with you know the new waco's record a new mekon's record or is is something kind of lost at this point like it's hard to sort of get back i don't that know yet. i feel like something's i feel like something's been lost you know couldn't have come at a worse time to be honest yeah you know so 
it's just a different world now. I think we, you kind of wake up into a different world, and uh, I'm trying to be optimistic about it and trying to keep doing things, but uh, it gets harder and harder, you know. Headlights in the nights, there are always signals and signs. Found a stranger to keep you from danger on the darkness we all find. You see troubles coming after me, I think you just read my mind. There's a storm coming, Ooh, get ready. A storm coming, Ooh, there's a storm. been a Chicagoan for close to 30 years, right? Yeah, it would be coming up to 30 years. I got my first apartment in Bucktown. Yeah. So. How have your, how, how have your feelings about this city sort of evolved over the years? Well, you know, it's Chicago, isn't it? I love it. And then there's horrible things about it. I, I hate the sort of segregation of the city. I hate the poverty and the, the, the violence and the, I hate the, you know, you you drive in one direction you could go through like miles and miles of just ridiculous opulence and mansions and more money there's, the people keep telling you there's no money for anything and there's so much money out right. there. you drive up through the you know that gold coast up that way money 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 and people don't know what to do with their money they got so much and then you could go down to where the hospital where joe camarillo um he was in where he, where he died, and he'd go to Harvey, Illinois, and drive around down there and see what it's like down there. It's like, you know, if if somebody hasn't sown the seeds for a revolution, I don't know what else they'd have to do, but there's no revolution happening here. Do you feel like, having been here for a while, that these problems are just intractable, or do you feel like there's sort of glimmers of hope of things getting better? Um, sometimes there's glimmers. I don't know. I I found uh, the public response to the pandemic extremely depressing. You know, I crave living in a country where people have a bit of socialism, understand that socialism, and appreciate that socialism, rather than a country which is got loads of socialism where people deny that it exists right you know and and, and hate it and hate the idea of it and the arguing about it's science a, part yeah. gets me too it's just that, just, sort of like arguing when you don't have to argue about things i in my opinion i got, my like, uh, I got you know no kids now are going walking out of schools because they don't want to wear masks and stuff like that you know 
the kids are like being radicalized to go the other way. And it's like, what the hell? Just you know. got through it. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. It's, it's not turning into a very positive interview, this. Well. I do. I mean, there's some glimmers. There are glimmers of oh, people I like I, to be a socialist. Like I am, you have to believe in the sort of goodness of people. And that hopefully people can, you know, see the light. But I feel like that ideas of community and the benefits of a society working together have been fairly destroyed probably as far back as Ronald Reagan and Reagan and Thatcher you know that's the stuff we've been harping on about with the Mekons for all these years in our songs it's like I don't find you know we've been documenting and reflecting events but I don't feel like anything's getting any better it's only getting worse now you've got all these kind of oligarch man-children flying off into space with their little spacesuits on and stuff, you know, while creating, and you know, something like Amazon. I mean, what is Amazon for? What does Amazon do other than destroy the fabric of our society? Makes it easier, fills the alleys with cardboard boxes, fills the streets with big vans, and allows you to buy things you don't need almost instantly delivered to your doorstep. Well, all the shops are getting boarded up because no one go shopping anymore you know small businesses can be destroyed i mean it's it's am i an old fart yes i'm an old <laughs> fart i, well, you I know crave what? a world where people actually think about the the consequences of their actions and where there's some sort of government that actually looks into things like this and they used to they broke up big companies like that in the past because they could see the danger it was to the fabric of society now they're just letting them go. Well, they're all there's there's the money is so much more of a. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I assume the money was always a major part of politics, but it just seems like it's taken over to a greater. Yeah, I mean, extent. it's been it's a it's a it's a plan. People have been used like pawns, you know. See now, so I'd thought of music growing up as being this unifying force. And that, you know, to me, like the music that I loved was as important as any speech that anyone had ever gave because it sort of connected me to something. Do you, do you feel that way about music? And do you think the music is that force or can be that force anymore? Or do you think that it's just another one of these things that's become marginalized and fragmented? Uh, I do like the way um, my kids are really into music. I do like the way my kids are really thoughtful. And, Tommy's in a band. Yeah, and and music's so important to them, and also they they tie in the music with the politics and you know artistic a broader for sort of very tolerant kind of like what's the word? I don't know. There's like a kind of cosmos that they move in that's where. There's a lot of boundaries have been destroyed that were there when I was a kid. But there seems to be, you know, they're doing that. I fear that there's a lot of people in the world sitting back trying to reassemble all those kind of walls and boundaries. And right. I, maybe it's, you know, we have to be very vigilant about, you know, it's there's a lot of double, double messages I'm getting from the world at the moment, you know. A lot of things that are good, and then, oh, what's going on behind behind that wall, you know? Where would you say that you are happiest 
in terms of, I guess, in, in terms of like your, your, your creation, your art, would it, would it be on stage making music? Would it be in a studio? Would it be in this studio making visual art? Um, I think in company of other musicians and, you know, other musicians and artists. And, and I like working, I like collaborating. I like working with other people. I like, I'd probably be happiest in the pub talking about planning Right, doing something, you know, sitting around pl- plotting—that's my favorite thing. More so than the actual being on the stage and yeah, executing. Yeah, I love the, I love all that, but I like, uh, you know, what one thing I missed. I know is I like the camaraderie of being on stage with a with a band, and then I like to sit around with them afterwards when right. all the tension, the tension of preparing for the gig and actually putting it out there and doing what you do on stage, when that's all kind of like evaporated, then you just sit down and you you just, just talk and hang out. That's what I've missed. I've missed that a lot. Yeah. There's a, that's, you know, that's where Joe Camarillo was the expert at that, you know, the post-gig conversation. Well, you know which way the river flows And the water in the well has long run dry I was coming home, but everything went wrong I watched it fall apart before my eyes I tried to fly Storm, but I washed up on some shore so far away. Now there's nothing I can do to ever get back to you. I know that this is where I have to stay. And well, you know, when the border closed. The stories we got told were never true And this security, it don't mean that much to me I have watched this country tear itself in two And well you know just how it always goes From cloudy water Scum must rise Well the grass looked green But I let it grow under my feet I must wait here at the border Till I die Drunk or worse Sit down Ease my thirst The water in the well Has long drunk dry I was coming home But everything went wrong I watched it fall apart before my eyes I have watched it fall apart before my eyes That's it for episode 22 of Carol Pop. 
Thanks to John Langford for saying yes, as he often does, and for talking and performing so excellently. John's art can be bought from Yard Dog Gallery in Austin, Texas, and Lemieux Galleries in New Orleans. Check them out. You also must make sure you have all of those Mekons and Waco Brothers albums and the Four Lost Souls and whatever he does next. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who wears many hats himself and did a masterful job recording this episode on location. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And also look for Carol Pop on Twitter at Caropop1. That's the number. And visit the Carol Pop website, caropop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. 